Good. I think everybody has now joined us. And yeah, thank you very much for coming. Um, so welcome to this, the sixth meeting of the 142nd session of the Aristotelian Society. It's my very great pleasure to introduce Professor Andrew Huddleston. Professor Huddleston is at the University of Warwick, where he is co-director of the Centre for Research in Post-Kantian European Philosophy. Professor Huddleston works primarily on 19th and 20th century European philosophy, particularly Nietzsche, aesthetics and ethics. His book, Nietzsche on the Decadence and Flourishing of Culture, was published by Oxford University Press in 2019. And he is presently at work on a book that he tells us is tentatively titled Art's Highest Calling, The Religion of Art in a Secular Age. He is also on the editorial committee of the European Journal of Philosophy as review editor. Professor Huddleston's paper today focuses on aesthetics, and I suspect it relates in some way to his forthcoming book, and it's entitled Aesthetic Beautification. Please join me in welcoming Professor Huddleston. Thank you very much, Bob, and thank you to the Aristotelian Society for this very kind invitation. I'm just going to share my screen. Okay. Yeah, that looks good. You might want to um, put it on slideshow. Yeah, that's yep. good. Looking good. Okay, so I want to begin with a quotation that nicely encapsulates the phenomenon, the artistic phenomenon that I want to talk about. And this quotation comes from Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain uh, from the chapter called The Fullness of Harmony, where the main character, Hans Kastorp, is listening to these snippets of music on the gramophone. And one of the, uh, one of the things in his program is the final scene from Aida. And this is the description of that, uh, that final scene in Aida. Um, I take it many of you will know the plot already, but the, the two protagonists are sealed together in a tomb to die. And uh, Mann is describing this, um, the, the, the juxtaposition between the beauty of the music and uh, what's actually going on and through describing this through the eyes of Hans Kastrup. So I'm gonna play this excerpt from Aida um, and then we'll, we'll move into the, the, the rest of the talk itself. So this is um, uh, Tabaldi and Bergonzi singing, uh, carry on conducting final scene of Aida. Let's see, is the sound gonna go? No. Oh, <laughs> 
Oh. How do I click to the next slide? Thomas Mann, in the wonderfully evocative passage quoted, trains his attention on a familiar artistic phenomenon. Even as they face death, heroes and heroines in opera sing glorious music. And so too outside the operatic realm, characters in Shakespearean tragedies still deliver beautifully eloquent speeches in the throes of despair. Even when plumbing the depths of melancholy, Chopin preludes can still resound with breathtaking melodiousness. And even depicting suffering and horror, paintings, whether of saints tortured, pietas, or Acteon mortally wounded, can remain a delight for the eyes. Since at least Aristotle, philosophers have weighed in on the more general issue of what's now referred to as the paradox of tragedy. What explains the value of our engagement with works portraying suffering, death, and things of a similar ilk? In addition to Aristotle's view, various influential suggestions have been put forward by Lessing, by Hume, by Schiller, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and many others. My focus here is on something more specific, however, the phenomenon that I'm going to call supplementing Mann's term, aesthetic beautification, where a work of art represents or expresses something in ordinary life, we would attribute a negative valence, suffering, horror, death, and the like, but it does so in Mann's image with a veil of beauty over it. What's the artistic significance of this phenomenon? Doubtless there's not a single explanation for what transpires in art of this sort or in our experience of it. And so too, I think with the broader paradox of tragedy, it's often addressed rather implausibly and unhelpfully as though there were one answer to it for all works and all spectators. With some aesthetically beautified art, its foremost goal might be giving us aesthetic pleasure and the beauty of the aesthetic form, even when depicting horrors, is in the service of that primary aim. In other art, the beautification might seek to be jarring and thought-provoking, highlighting a disconnect between the aesthetic frame and what's portrayed. These explain much of aesthetic beautification and are often variable reactions to it, but I'm particularly interested in considering another more specific response still, the response of finding ourselves, as Mann describes Hans Kastorp as being, consoled by the beautification. Why might beautification aid in consoling us? And what could that consolation amount to? A softening or mitigation of the horror of what's presented, a catharsis, some kind of answer, some hint of justification or hint of redemption that the beauty vouchsafes. Again, there's likely not a single response for all works and for all spectators in all cases, but aesthetic beautification, Mann seems to suggest in this direction, might leave some of us entertaining thoughts of redemption that in our more sober moments of reflection, we would never countenance. We know on some level, Aida and Radames will meet with an excruciating death, but enticed or maybe seduced by the beauty of Verdi's music, we can find our attention drawn away from a full reckoning with that. Indeed, perhaps more. It's as though the music invites even the resolute atheists among us at some emotional, if not rational level, to feel against our better judgment that in the libretto's words, heaven is indeed opening and the light of its eternity streaming forth. How might beautification aid in this? How might it tempt the amenable among us to such imaginings and thoughts? And what are we to make of this phenomenon? Is it a kind of objectionable sentimentality or might there be more to be said in its favor? I begin with some reflections on aesthetic beautification in general, and then turn to consider how beautification and consolation might be connected and what to make of this. To begin with, what is beauty and what in turn is beautification? Well, I don't think we can do much to define beauty in a general or informative way. We can say things like beauty consists in qualities, the apprehension of which pleases the senses, but that doesn't really differentiate the beautiful from what Kant called the agreeable, it doesn't distinguish the music of Mozart from strawberry jam. Kant himself famously seeks to make the distinction by claiming that judgments of beauty are disinterested as well as universal. And further, in connection with his architectonic philosophy of mind, he sees beauty as occasioning in us a harmony of the faculties, a free play of the imagination and the understanding. 
for my purposes here, I'm not interested in precisely demarcating the beautiful or in uh, arguing about the universality of beauty or about what, if anything, underwrites uh, the legitimacy of judgments of it. One's tempted to echo what Justice Potter Stewart said about pornography and apply it to beauty as well. One can't define it, but one knows it when one sees it. Now that's rather too glib here, but I think a full investigation of the nature of beauty is too far afield and possibly fruitless if what we're hoping for is answers to these fundamental metaphysical and normative questions. So we'll have to make do with beauty as loosely and conventionally understood, albeit with one caveat. There's a contingent who want to rebrand any aesthetic or artistic excellence as beauty. And perhaps this is because they're enthralled to the thesis that art is good just insofar as it's beautiful. Now that to me seems a misapplication of beauty, stretching the notion beyond all intelligible recognition. But in any event, what I mean by it is a specific, admittedly difficult to define, paradigmatically, if not exclusively, perceptible aesthetic quality that is often, though not always, a good making feature of the work of art, and the presence of which is sometimes going to be a matter of dispute. Um, it's not meant as a catch-all term for any aesthetic or artistic excellence whatsoever. Works can be evocative, moving, profound, thought-provoking, clever, powerful, striking, disturbing, and so on. Beauty is just one among many potentially valuable qualities in a work of art, and of course is to be found outside art as well. Mid-century Anglophone aesthetics, and to some extent strands in post-Kantian aesthetics of the same period um, and before, both represented reactions against this idea of the dominance of the beautiful as the central aesthetic notion. J.L. Austin counseled that we focus on a wider range of aesthetic descriptors in his famous phrase, the dainty and the dumpy, and give the beautiful a rest. Other prominent aestheticians held similar views. For Nelson Goodman in the languages of art, beauty is not a good general measure of artistic merit. And so too in the classic work of Arthur Danto. The key observation, put especially nicely by Danto, is that something can be good as art without being beautiful. Um, here, uh, Duchamp's Fountain as, as one example. Uh, John Passmore in The Dreariness of Aesthetics is representative of uh, an extreme of this tendency to, um, to, to downplay beauty. Uh, he says, um, just reading this quote here, there's something suspect, phony about beauty. Artists seem to get along quite well without it. It's the cafe haunters, the preachers, the metaphysicians, and the calendar makers who talk of beauty. These philosophical reflections are in keeping with trends in 20th and 21st century art making. Beauty at first glance is not an especially apposite category in thinking about the work of say Kafka or Bacon or Adrian Piper or um, Karlheinz Stockhausen. Continuing to insist on the centrality of beauty can seem uh, naive and quaint, possibly even suspicious. In the post-Kantian tradition, beauty is speaking very generally, far less important than ideas or content that the work of art is thought to provide access to. While Hegel still couches much of his aesthetic theorizing in terms of beauty, the fundamental point for him is that beauty is the sensuous appearance of the idea. Thus, the concern is less beauty per se than what is expressed in Hegel's view par partially inadequately through that beauty. Similarly for Schelling and for Schopenhauer, for whom the metaphysical insight from art is its most significant value. And for the towering figures in 20th century European aesthetics, Heidegger or Adorno, for instance, beauty is not a subject of great concern. They're far more interested in the ideational content potentially conveyed through the work of art or embedded in it. Beauty of late has had something of a rehabilitation. Against the long-standing mid-century orthodoxy, Mary Mothersill was a, an important holdout and a countervailing voice in the vanguard, and so too more recently Ruth Laurent, Alexander Nehamas, Roger Scruton, uh, Dominic Lopez, and others have taken up this banner. And in Danto's late work, he also turns his attention to beauty, his book, The Abuse of Beauty, 2003, after having said relatively little about it previously, and after having suggested that it's of no great moment when it comes to the evaluation of much art of the 20th century. Wherever we stand on these background issues, however, it should be evident that beauty is an important aesthetic quality. Beauty is a feature of many artworks, but also a feature of the natural world and of non-art artifacts. They're 
beautiful people, mountain vistas, sunsets, beautiful cars, beautiful suits, uh, along with beautiful works of art. When beauty is present in artifacts, it's usually, though not always, something that's meant to be there. And if one believes in a creator God, this is presumably thought true of the natural world as well, the beauty meant to be there. The creator or artist tried to make the thing in question beautiful. So in some very broad sense, that could be thought of as a kind of beautification, where that's understood as about adding beauty or bringing beauty into being in the creation of something. But my focus in this paper is on a narrower phenomenon of beautification. I mean, to refer to artistic expression or representation of something that is not or not ordinarily beautiful, but representing it either as beautiful or what is importantly different in a beautiful way. The figurative painting depicts a certain scene, the lamentation over the dead Christ, for example. This can be beautiful, as in uh, Giotto's lamentation in the Scrivegni Chapel in Padua, or it can not be, as in Francis Bacon's striking and powerful, but not to my mind, beautiful three studies for figures at the base of the crucifixion, uh, which hangs in the tape. An opera is a drama that involves representation of certain events. Aida and Radames are sealed together in a tomb to die. Some operatic deaths are depicted in a beautiful way, such as Pierre and Aida, and in a great many other cases. Other portrayals, as with Marie and Wozzeck's fate in, in Berg's opera Wozzeck, are set to music that's jagged and eerie and disturbing. Beauty is not a word that seems appropriate here. The excellence of Berg's music notwithstanding. These cases just cited are ones where the content of the work is straightforwardly representational, but the notion of beautification could extend beyond this. For example, instrumental music without text or program might be thought expressive of melancholy, as in the Chopin E minor prelude, but not thought to be representing it as music might represent, say, a, a bird shot or, or, sorry, a bird song or a cannon shot. Just giving you a little taste of the E minor prelude. Abstract painting, that of, say, Mark Rothko, for example, this too could be expressive of something, an emotion or a mood, for example, but not represent anything, at least if by that we mean anything recognizably figurative. Now, whether this expression versus representation distinction, which is often um, made a lot of in this philosophical subdomain, whether that ultimately amounts to much, I myself am not sure, that's less important than the idea for me that beautification of the sort that I'm interested in can potentially extend to abstractions. Now, it's important to distinguish the properties of a beautiful representation or expression on the one hand from the properties of that which is represented or expressed on the other. There can be a beautiful picture of something ugly, and there can be an ugly picture of something beautiful. Now, take a case where we think an artistic rendition of suffering to be beautiful. Does it follow that we must think that the suffering itself is thereby supposed to be beautiful in that work of art? Well, not necessarily and not likely. One might, for example, hear the opening of Bach's St. Matthew Passion as a beautiful expression of communal suffering. But one doesn't need thereby to think the beauty a property of the suffering itself that is expressed in that music. In fact, the latter understanding would be rather odd, even if we think that there are sometimes cases where suffering is itself in some way beautiful or supposed to be seen as so. Consider by analogy a simpler case that doesn't involve beautification at all. Picasso in his blue period paints people with blue faces. But we don't suppose that such people are themselves supposed to have blue faces. The painting's subject is not, we think, severely deprived of oxygen or turning into a blueberry, as Violet Beauregard does in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Picasso's color choice is serving other goals, to create a somber atmosphere in the work, to express a depressive sort of attitude, um, for instance. So 
although less immediately evident, a similar disjunction is possible in cases of beautification. We can judge art's expression or representation of suffering to be rapturously beautiful without thinking that the work is expressing or representing suffering that is itself beautiful. Much as we can see a blue representation of a face in a Picasso painting without thinking that the painting depicts a person who is herself blue in the face. As Arthur Danto aptly points out in the spirit, a beautiful picture of a crucifixion needn't be thought a picture of a beautiful crucifixion. The beauty, in other words, can be a property of the work of art without being a property of that which the work represents, even as represented as it were in the fictional world of the work. Beautification, it should be added, is not necessarily a merit of the work of art, either. Beauty is generally speaking good, but not always. And it's not straightforwardly additive either. The addition of some beautiful element to a work will not necessarily make that work more beautiful. So adding you know, random beautiful rainbow or a beautiful uh, face to a painting isn't going to make the painting more beautiful. Um, see here, I, I'm up against my technical limitations in trying to uh, put this slide together, but um, use your imagination. Um, and nor will adding uh, 10 times as many such objects result in 10 times the additional beauty. Indeed, the effect may be precisely the opposite. So beauty is something to be assessed in holistic terms. I now want to turn to considering the roles of beautification. As noted already, there's not one role for beautification or one reaction to it. Uh, but there's, there are several, and I want to go through three main possibilities for what role beautification might be playing in a work. A hedonic role, a subversive role, and a consoling role. And these aren't meant to be exhausted, but it's to, to give us a start for thinking about some of, the, uh, some of the ways we can understand this phenomenon better. Now, one natural assumption about works of art, more common historically than it is in art circles today, is that their point or their primary goal is to give us aesthetic pleasure. Accordingly, when they take potentially disturbing subject matter as their focus, they need to tread carefully in their presentation so that we can still take aesthetic pleasure from them. The view is prevalent among several figures in the 18th century, though also is much more widespread. One seminal treatment here is Lessing's Leocoon, its name and central topic based on the Hellenistic sculpture that was unearthed in Rome in 1506 and is presently to be found in the Vatican Museums. Pliny describes the Leocoon as one of the greatest works ever produced. The sculpture portrays the eponymous Trojan priest along with his two sons writhing as they're attacked by sea serpents which coil menacingly around their torsos. Its subject might not antecedently seem to lend itself to beautiful treatment, Yet as Lessing notes, sorry. And as Lessing notes, among the ancients anyway, uh, beauty was the supreme law of the visual arts. Once this has been established, he continues, it necessarily follows that whatever else these arts may include must give way completely, if not compatible with beauty. And if compatible, must at least be subordinate to it. If the ancients couldn't represent something beautifully in sculpture, Lessing suggests they wouldn't represent it at all. In the case of Laocoon, the uh, quote, master strove to attain the highest possible beauty under the given condition of physical pain. The demands of beauty could not be reconciled with pain and all its disfiguring violence, so it had to be reduced. The scream had to be softened to a sigh, not because screaming betrays an ennobled soul, but because it distorts the features in a disgusting manner. So there's a kind of adjustment in how the subject matter is portrayed in order to keep aesthetic pleasure from being outweighed by the horror of what is depicted. If we imagine what this scene might actually have looked like based on Virgil's description in the Aeneid, for instance, our imagination gives a different and more disturbing impression. Yet sculpture gives us a beautiful presentation of this horrifying event. We find a similar view expressed in a letter of Mozart's to his father, where he describes his musical characterization of Osmin in Die Entführung aus dem Serai, the abduction from the Seraglio. 
Mozart writes, passions, whether violent or not, must never be expressed in, a w- in such a way as to excite disgust. And his music, even in the most terrible situations, must never offend the ear, but must please the hearer, or in other words, must never cease to be music. So here again, the goal is keeping the hearer uh, pleased, and that operates as a constraint on what is portrayed and on the manner of its portrayal. A violent passion is not itself something likely to be beautiful, but it can be rendered beautifully in the music, potentially. A similar idea is central to Hume's resolution of the paradox of tragedy. The events portrayed in a tragedy are ones that would ordinarily occasion displeasure and unease, Hume observes. But we nonetheless take pleasure in reading and watching tragedies. Why is this? According to Hume, it's that our pleasure in the manner of representation outweighs our displeasure in what's portrayed, and indeed transforms that displeasure into a kind of pleasure. So he says, quote, the impulse or vehemence arising from sorrow, compassion, indignation, receives a new direction from the sentiments of beauty. The latter, being the predominant emotion, seize the whole mind and convert the former into themselves, at least tincture them so strongly as to totally alter their nature. So here the beauty of the portrayal allows us to take pleasure where we otherwise would not. Hume's proposal relies on the principle of concurrent emotions as Malcolm Budd has called it. According to this principle, when two emotions come together, the hedonic tone of the stronger emotion subsumes the weaker emotion and converts the raw power of the weaker into the stronger emotion. So thus weak displeasure in the events portrayed combined with stronger pleasure in the beautiful manner of their portrayal yields an even stronger kind of aesthetic pleasure. So from Lessing, from Mozart, from Hume, we have one sort of explanation for what might be going on with aesthetic beautification, namely it's pleasure preserving and pleasure enhancing. And clearly this hedonic role is one important way that aesthetic beautification operates. In part, it's a matter of genre specific conventions and historical expectations here. For much of its history, art, particularly music and visual art, has with some exceptions here or there, needed to be beautiful. It's really only uh, around the cusp of the 20th century that art that's not beautiful comes to occupy such a central place. While this hedonic objection is central, objective rather is central and common, we fail, I think, to realize the artistic complexity in aesthetic beautification if we focus on this explanation alone, this hedonic explanation alone. Sometimes aesthetic beautification is not just serving to preserve aesthetic pleasure, but instead seeks to invite us to further consideration, spurred on by noting the fact of beautification itself. Danto draws a suggestive, if somewhat elusive distinction between what he calls internal and external beauty in his book, The Abuse of Beauty. In cases of internal beauty, according to Danto, the beauty is part of the meaning of the work. And in cases of external beauty, it is not. In cases of external beauty, then, the fact of the works being beautiful is thus of no real critical import when it comes to the thematic interpretation of the work. Danto elucidates the, the contrasting idea of internal beauty through two main examples. Maya Lin's Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, DC, and Robert Motherwell's Elegies to the Spanish Republic series of paintings, this being one example um, as well. So these are his two central examples. The beauty in these works, he wants to say, isn't ancillary or incidental. Danto sees the beauty in both of them as interacting with their thematic meaning, with, as as he puts it, the artistic thoughts that these works express. So much aesthetic beautification may just be there to keep pleasure from getting swamped by horror, but often, as these examples are meant to suggest, something more complex is going on. The fact of beautification is inviting more varied thoughts and reactions. So whereas some aesthetic beautification serves to deflect attention from the horror of what is portrayed, in other cases, it serves as a stimulus to reflection. The fact that it is beautified is relevant to the work's meaning. 
So here, uh, this is an example that Fred Rush uses, um, excellent example of Buñuel and Dali's En Chien Andalou, the film, um, which has the notorious scene of a razor slicing into an eye. Um, I, I can, I'm sparing you video here, you're just getting a, um, uh, a um, still shot of it. Uh, the film, as, as Rush puts it, deploys, quotation from him, deploys beauty to subvert beauty. There is the careful juxtaposition of the formal beauty of the shots and the shocking content that so effectively undermines the placidity, architecture, and repose that often typify beauty. In other cases, there may be a similar effect for some audiences, but unintentionally. For instance, where the work is sought to give aesthetic pleasure and does that, but also leaves us disconcerted. And I think this is a phenomenon we see in, in opera quite a bit. Women, for example, get far more of their share of violence and self-violence in opera. Stunningly beautiful, though Liu's music is in act three of Puccini's Turandot, many find unsettling her torture and self-sacrifice, when set, particularly when set to such beautiful music, when she's re refusing to reveal the prince's name. A work might, with some critically engaged audiences, end up being subversive despite itself. I'll play just a little bit, little bit of this. Here we have other cases that are more difficult to classify. So consider, for example, the photographs of Robert Mablethorpe, which incited a furor from social conservatives in the 1980s. Some of his most celebrated pictures depict sadomasochistic content, but in a highly stylized way with carefully crafted compositions. To my mind, the point is not simply to subvert beauty, though for some they may have that effect, but instead they're invitations to reevaluate one's reactions toward what is depicted, to find in the apparent incongruity of form and content, beauty where none might be expected to be found. Baudelaire's poetic sensibility in Le Fleur du Mal is an important precursor, finding, for instance, singular music in a decomposing corpse and comparing it to, uh, or a carcass and comparing it to a blooming flower. In all of these cases, our experience is not one of aesthetic pleasure, pure and simple, or at least um, doesn't seem to be like that, but reacting to aesthetic beautification in a way that triggers reflection. What does it mean that the work is aesthetically beautified in the way that it is, or suggesting an image of beautification in the way that it does? What should our reaction to this be, and what should we take away from it? So that's a whole category of cases as well. We've seen so far ways in which aesthetic beautification can be pleasure preserving and thought provoking. I now want to consider ways it might also be consoling. And these, it should be noted, aren't exclusive um, functions. There may be some tension among these different functions, but I don't think they're, they're exclusive even for a given work. This capacity for consolation that I now want to switch to talking about now, that was highlighted in that quotation from Thomas Mann that we began with, where he talks about the, uh, through, through Kastorp's uh, perspective, the consoling power of this beautification. And it's also central to the two main examples that Danto uses to illustrate internal beauty, Lynn's Vietnam War Memorial and Motherwell's Elegies to the Spanish, for the Spanish Republic. Consolation comes in the face of suffering or grief, and it can take different routes, which can potentially be combined. Sometimes at the heart of it is a sense of resonance or community. Consolation comes through showing us that we're not alone in our experience. A work of art in expressing something we feel or have felt can perform or can embody this sort of consolation. And the beauty might serve to further enhance 
the solidarity of feeling. This communality is reinforced in works such as the Vietnam War Memorial that are created as public art and that have a kind of civic imprimatur to them. Another route is to put something into a sort of frame and thereby render it more tractable. Kathleen Higgins describing this notes that, quote, aesthetic activities are a way of containing grief. They express its diverse emotions in and through means that order them and provide them a shape that others can appreciate. When it comes to containment, beauty might go hand in hand with the sort of framing that Higgins describes. Art can contain or frame the experience, for instance, in an elegiac poem or in an aria. And the framing and the beauty might be connected in that both are largely grounded in the formal elements of the work. Yet at the same time, beauty's consoling power seems to stretch beyond just providing framing form or reinforcing community. Danto here offers one tentative suggestion. He says, quote, it's as though beauty works as a catalyst, transforming raw grief into tranquil sadness, helping the tears to flow, and at the same time, one might say, putting the loss into a certain philosophical perspective. So that suggests a kind of catharsis that beauty might initiate and further, as well as a sort of reflection that it invites. Sometimes consolation aided by beauty can be about getting us to see something as part of a narrative or a pattern. And that's perhaps one, though not the only way, of putting loss into a philosophical perspective, to repeat that phrase of Danto's. Rilke's Duino elegies, for example, invite us to see death as an inevitable part of a larger order of nature, with us flowering and falling like catkins on a hazel tree, one of the beautiful images with which the, the Duino elegies ends. And that can tilt toward a kind of redemption in that such an order or pattern is an exercise in sense-making or in providing meaning. Christian art is, of course, the paradigm when it comes to full-blown redemption. The martyred saint looks heavenward to the gilded sky as God's saving radiance shines down upon her, as in Tintoretto's Saint Catherine. Or as in Raphael's transfiguration, Christ appears illuminated in white, floating above and in his person giving the answer to the sufferings below, represented in the possessed boy on the right-hand side, uh, whom the returning Christ will come to heal. In these cases, the beauty is not operating independently of the Christian narrative of redemption. And perhaps that's true in Aida as well, albeit in a somewhat more etiolated way, perhaps. Whether the rays of gold or the lampus lazuli sky or the sound of harps, such art uses beautification coupled with well-understood conventions to reinforce its redemptive message. Yes, it seems to say there is suffering down in this veil of tears, but there is also salvation. At the other end of the spectrum from the Christian narratives, but still in the orbit of what is usefully thought of as redemptive consolation, we have Nietzsche's central suggestion from The Birth of Tragedy. It's been aptly described as Nietzsche's aesthetic theodicy. Now, it's not to be sure the traditional theological project of reconciling God's omnipotence and goodness with the existence of evil, but it's instead about show, art showing us somehow that life is justified or existence is justified, particularly in its darker aspects. In Nietzsche's famous line from The Birth of Tragedy, it is, quote, only as an aesthetic phenomenon that existence and the world is eternally justified. So it's not justified in moral terms or in rational terms, but from a cosmic perspective, from the standpoint of the artist gods in Nietzsche's term, there is a kind of meaning in existence, even in its most cruel dimensions, as an aesthetic spectacle. Now, cold comfort for us, one might think, but art tragedy most centrally can invite us to temporarily adopt this spectatorial position of the artist god, the Teatrum Mundi, and tragedy's beautification, its sonorous poetry, its accompaniment by music, its delivery by masked actors, it encourages us to see as aesthetically justified what an ordinarily, ordinary life we would not. 
And that, in essence, is Nietzsche's attempted resolution to the paradox of tragedy, or at least as a central part of it. Now, experiences surely differ, and um, the, one doubts that what Nietzsche traces is in its psychological details and especially common reaction. When we see beautiful representations or hear beautiful musical expressions of suffering, we needn't think the suffering is itself beautiful, even when it's being expressed or represented beautifully in the work. As we've seen, aesthetically beautified art can leave us with a range of reactions, and even consolation, more specifically, can leave us with a range of responses too. I'm particularly interested in the cases of redemptive consolation, where we take neither the Nietzschean route just described, nor subscribe to a narrative licensing the specifically Christian route either. And that, it seems to me, is the interesting space that Mann is exploring in that quotation we began with. Verdi's music suggests a heavenly ascent. And for those who subscribe to such a Christian view, perhaps the consolation comes in thinking that Aida and Radames's love survives their bodily deaths, as is suggested in those final words that they sing. But what about for those who presumably, as with Kostorp, don't believe this? Those of us who think, as he does, that art has thrown a veil of beauty over what will be a terrible and a final end. How could we still be consoled? as he apparently and rather puzzlingly is. To my mind, there are two main options here. One is a kind of imaginative initiation into the worldview. We imagine that Aida and Radames are heaven bound. These are after all fictional characters in a fictional story. Might not their final redemption be an element of that fiction too? Perhaps, and as with the more full-bloodedly Christian art, the beautification here we could think has a kind of rhetorical function. It tries to persuade us at an emotional level of the worldview that is on offer. And for those who think that the text of Aida is really the crucial thing here, just imagine if we had that same text, but set to the sonic world of Berg's Wozzeck. The effect I think would be a musical form of irony. It would be undermining the sentiments that are in the libretto. So we might play along here with what we're being invited to make believe. To make believe. We're imagining that Aida and Radames' souls are to be lifted aloft. And here we have specific thoughts of what the redemption in question is supposed to be, and we're imagining in accordance with that. What's puzzling is that Kalstrup seems to have a clear-eyed awareness of what Aida and Radames' awful fate will in fact be, and even as it were in the world of the work, we might say. But nonetheless, he still manages to be consoled. I think the more explicit our imagining of a redemptive ending is, the more difficult it can be to sustain in the face of the scenario. And that's what brings me to a second possibility to think about. Beauty might instead serve to invite thoughts and feelings that are less detailed and specific. Beauty could provide an intimation of meaning that it never actually grants us. When it gilds the sky, when it sets the harps twinkling, we might think of it, I suggest, as giving what for many will amount to an alluringly nonspecific bluff, however earnest the art and the artist may be in their conviction. We don't imagine, let alone believe, for many of us anyway, that Aida and Radames will be saved and will ascend to heaven. But we might feel at some more subliminal level, encouraged by the beauty, that there might be some redemptive meaning here, even if we can't put our fingers on it. But if we become too self-conscious, we try to find some reason justification of our feeling of momentary comfort, it may just evaporate. Both of these options seem as though they could be live possibilities, for some anyway. Others, no doubt, are immune or else find subscription to the Christian metaphysics unproblematic or straightforwardly appealing. But assuming we can or do engage in either of the ways I've just described, that we can find this kind of consolation of the castoral sort from art, we can go on to ask a further question about whether we should. 
And there are parallel issues here about our reactions to works of religious art, which in some sense, Aida could be thought to be, uh, our reactions to works of religious art as non-believers, which have been uh, taken up in the work of Aaron Ridley and Alex Neal, their paper, Religious Music for, for Godless Ears. And in this paper, they're responding to a question that was pointedly posed by Michael Tanner in his classic paper, Sentimentality, where he says, Enormous numbers of our feelings and attitudes toward the most basic issues are based on some more or less traditional Christian outlook. But we're no longer living in a Christian society in any serious sense, and most of us are not Christians. Our general view of the world is not at all like Christ's, and yet we depend for much of our emotional and spiritual succor on art and teaching that not only presupposes the truth of Christianity, but actively propagates it. Many an atheist thinks that the B minor mass is one of the greatest works of art. That is what I feel, but I'm not at all clear that I should. Sentimentality was famously described by Oscar Wilde as wanting to have the luxury of an emotion without paying for it, an idea that Tanner picks up and explores. And that might be an apt description of what is going on in these reactions of redemptive consolation that I've described. We want the luxury of thinking Aida and Radames are being drawn up into the eternal light or redeemed in some non-specific way, but actually we're not entitled to think that. The veil of beauty has deflected us from the facts that they'll die excruciatingly painful deaths and that no beyond is in store for them. So are we in some fashion being sentimental here? Is redemptive consolation a kind of sentimentality? And it's to those questions I wanna turn in conclusion. Beautified art as we've seen can be serving various ends and can occasion a variety of reactions, some of which I've tried to outline here. We've trained our attention on one in particular, the way that art aided by its beautification can console its audiences in the face of what it depicts or expresses. These days, attempted artistic redemptions of suffering are in the high arts anyway, mostly passe. It's a serious question whether one should be consoled by art, particularly in this more redemptive manifestation that I've talked about, or whether one should resist its temptations steadfastly. Adorno, for example, decries art that offers consolation. Iris Murdoch rails against approaching art in search of this sort of easy reassurance. She thinks we shirk our responsibility in the pursuit of truth when we give in to these consoling illusions. One dictum about Thomas Mann's work is that he keeps an ironic distance from the phenomena he describes. And in beginning with an epigraph from Mann, I've more or less hoped to follow the same tack. Perhaps we shouldn't be wholly unsympathetic to Kalstorp's experience at the gramophone, so long as we retain a healthy suspicion about this sort of redemptive consolation in particular, and certain other forms of aesthetic beautification. But my focus here is more on exploration than it is on defense, but still in closing, I'd like to venture at least some preliminary remarks in support of what we might call the Kalstorp experience. One might think that art should be a truth-telling or a revelatory medium. And that's an entrenched intuition, a deep commitment to the tradition of theorizing about the cognitive value of art, going back as with the paradox of tragedy, at least to Aristotle. Now, art is rarely truth, pure and simple. Much of it deals in fictions of people who never existed, situations that never occurred. But with great art anyway, the reaction of many, indeed it's basically my own reaction, is to think that if Artist's account is genuinely great. It must be truthful or revelatory at some deep level, plumbing the depths of human existence, delivering some insight about it. Um, when it doesn't accept that challenge, we'll think it's lesser in some way. It's meretricious, it's somehow cheap. But even if we think that one of the most important roles of art is to be cognitive in this way, revealing the most important truths about the world or revealing the world, we might temper that with the competing idea that sometimes art can be about presenting powerful illusions as well. Indeed, we might think some of the best art reveals the most profound truths, even as it veils those truths with illusions. 
It was Nietzsche's best philosophical insight, or one of it, them anyway, in The Birth of Tragedy, to say that art could do both of these things at once and be all the greater for doing so. Or as he puts it with, with nice concision in one of his late notebook entries, we possess art lest we perish of the truth. Now, need we take the work of art's perspective at face value? Again, Nietzsche is instructive here. Art can offer us honest illusions, illusions that on some level we know to be illusions, illusions that needn't deceive us. And so too, I suspect, with the redemptive consolations that art might invite. We can know in the back of our minds and the front of them that art's glimmer of redemption is just a mirage, but at least for a few moments, it can console us by letting us feel that its promise of redemption is one that can be kept. Thank you.